911 Good Samaritans. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Imagine that you're at a party with some friends, family, and somebody suddenly has a drug or alcohol overdose. What do you do? Well, most of us would naturally be inclined to call 911, get a get a ambulance as quickly as possible. There's actually a law on the books in most states that if you do this, you can actually not be prosecuted or punished for being at a party or being around drugs. There's a law in New York now that is uh, that has been around for 10 years and there's an effort to extend it so that now this is something that is required to be taught in high school students, in high school so that all high school students are aware of this. And joining us to talk about this effort is Lucas Wentworth. He's a cannabis industry publicist, he's also a harm reduction advocate. Lucas, good of you to join us tonight, thank you. Thank you for having me, David. So Lucas, you had your own experience when you were 17, tell us about it. Yeah, so um, around the time I was 17 years old, I was at this small gathering at some of my friends' house uh, while their parents were away. And we were doing you know, just the usual things that you do at these types of parties. And But at one point, somebody came running over to where I was and they told me that a girl had snorted something. Uh, it, was, it was unclear what she had snorted um, during all the chaos. But by the time we went over there and uh, we tried to tried to shake her and we, we were yelling for her to wake up, it was pretty obvious that she was overdosing on something. Um, and so everybody around me started freaking naturally. Uh, people were trying to decide what the best course of action would be. Some people proposed we, we drop her off outside of a, an emergency room. Um, there were other people that were just talking about leaving the party. Um, but I have the fortune of having a mother who is a social worker, and she had taught my brother and I about the Good Samaritan Law, uh, which passed in 2011, which essentially serves as a legal shield, as you were saying, for people to call 911 without fear of arrest if they or someone they're with is having a drug or alcohol overdose. And so because I was knowledgeable of this law and our rights as minors around it, I was able to assure everybody around me at the party that we would not be getting in trouble if we called 911. And in fact, that was the right thing to do. And it was a good thing that we did because when the EMTs arrived, they gave her some Narcan or Naloxone, which is an opioid reversing drug. And they told us that she wasn't breathing when they arrived. And she came to in the back of the ambulance and they drove her to the hospital. But really, if we had done anything, if we had tried to drive her to the hospital or anything less than, than what we did do, she, she probably would have died. And it sounds like the biggest challenge now is really to try to convince or try to, you know, public awareness to let more people know that this law exists. Yeah. Exactly, and and that's why um, I'm so happy to be on your show and to, to be talking about some of the stuff that I'm trying to work on. Now, what's been the reaction as you've gone to New York lawmakers to say, hey, it's great that this law exists, but let's actually make sure that high school students as part of their curriculum are taught about it. Yeah, so uh, this is really kind of a, a citizen lobbying effort. Um, I'm, I've been working on it with my boss at my public relations firm. Evan Nissen, who was actually an original lobbyist that was helping push through the original Good Samaritan law. And so he's been a really helpful force in guiding me through this process. This is the first time I've ever tried to push through legislation. 
Um, and so we reached out to assembly member Linda Rosenthal, who represents a district in Manhattan. And her office, we reached out to her because she has uh, she's produced progressive legislation around drugs in the past. And her office was really into the idea and basically they got to work immediately writing this bill, uh, which basically mandates that the Good Samaritan law is taught about in public high schools in New York State. Um, it's called A6179 right now. And it's it was introduced in the assembly in New York in uh, March of 2021. And so far what Evan and I are doing right now is we've been reaching out to other assembly people and encouraging other people in our lives to do so, urging them to co-sponsor the legislation. Um, and yeah, we've already gotten two co-sponsors and we've gotten a number of organizations to write in letters of support to try to help us too. So, so far things are going pretty well and we're hoping that it's reintroduced once the assembly session starts again soon. Has there been any resistance, any major obstacles with Republicans or people who don't want any sort of discussion of drugs or anything else in high school? So far, not yet. Um, and we're hoping that we don't run into a lot of resistance considering that the original legislation was passed bipartisanly and almost unanimously. Though of course, things have changed a bit since 2011 um, in the political sphere. So nothing yet, but it's definitely something we're keeping in mind. And Lucas, how popular or how widespread are 911 Good Samaritan laws across the United States? Are there many states that already have this? Are there any other states that already teach this in their schools? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so far, we're not aware of any where that teaches about it in schools. This would be the first legislation of that kind. But there are Good Samaritan laws on the books in just about every state. Though they vary widely in the amount of protection they offer to the caller and the overdose victim. And just to be clear, in New York, I mean, if somebody is is underage and they're involved in alcohol or drugs, it doesn't matter that they're left, that they're younger than 18. If they call 911, if they're at the scene of what would ordinarily be considered a crime, as long as they're doing the right thing, they are protected. Correct? Yeah, that's exactly correct, and that's why. We think it's so important to teach about it in, in high schools because the reality is this just teaching generations of New Yorkers about their associated rights with this law will end up saving lives, especially young lives. And has the treatment for overdoses gotten better over the last 10 years? There have been a number of advancements, yeah. And New York State is actually on kind of the progressive end of uh, of these types of harm reduction legislations. Um, I know that there's been some others that they've passed this year that like allowed medically assisted treatment in jails and prisons. Um, there are some other things too, but there are a lot of advancements in harm reduction legislation, which gives us encouragement about this one. Do you find much surprise when you talk to younger people who are not aware of this law or going back to that party that you were at when you were 17? I mean, it seems like it's sort of, it should be a no brainer for most kids that, hey, do the right thing, call 911. But I gather that for a lot of kids, they're they're terrified. They're afraid that they're gonna get in trouble. Yeah, that's exactly the case. Um, 
in my experience and and in talking to other people, young people. Um, my wife is actually an educator. Uh, she teaches uh, sex and health education in Buffalo Public Schools where we're located. And as part of her, she works for like a nonprofit that is contracted to schools to teach health classes. And as part of her minors rights curriculum, she started to tell the children, the youth about the Good Samaritan law. And many of them have been coming up to her and thanking her and telling her that they weren't aware of it. So it's really an important thing to, to teach the youth about it. And that underscores that even right now, if it's not a requirement to be part of the curriculum, there's nothing, I suppose, in New York or really in any other state that stops a teacher from saying on their own, hey, I just want to make sure you are aware of a law that exists to protect all of you who may be going to a party tonight or tomorrow night or over the weekend and, and may see something catastrophic. Yeah, definitely. Where do you, so you mentioned that the, you think this is gonna be taken up when the assembly gets back in session. Um, assuming that, I assume that it passes, how quickly would it take effect? Could it could it go into as early as say winter time in the school year? I mean, what's the time frame for all of this? Yeah, um, hopefully it, it would be implemented as soon as possible. Um, it, probably it would take a little bit of work to get it into the current curriculum. So I would imagine it would, uh, probably take about a school year to be implemented. And the current trajectory of drug overdoses, are we seeing more overdoses now than say five years ago, less, about the same? Where where are we? Yeah, actually just last week, the CDC released its latest numbers about uh, overdoses during 2020. And it was incredibly tragic. It was it's the worst year in recorded history in the United States in terms of drug overdoses. I believe the number was uh, something like 93,000 Americans died of preventable overdoses last year, and uh, over 5,000 of them were were in New York alone. So that really underscores the importance of it. And do you see that as a function of the pandemic and just sort of the general uh, the malaise and depression of people in general, or or is there something else that's driving this? I think it was definitely exasperated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think probably a lot of harm reduction advocates would agree with that. Well, Lucas, it is a really a terrific work that you're doing and, and good luck in trying to get this extension of the 911 Good Samaritan bill passed so that high school students are required to learn about it. Everybody should know about this, whether you're in high school or college or any age. Call 911 if you see somebody having an overdose, do it. You're gonna be protected, at least in New York and most states as well. Lucas Wentworth, a cannabis industry publicist, also a harm reduction advocate. Lucas, good of you to join us on the program, thank you. Thank you so much, I really appreciate the time. You got it. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. All of us, of course, are deeply aware, painfully aware that we seem to be living in two Americas, the America of the informed and those who are uninformed. And nowhere is the example more deep and frustrating than perhaps in COVID-19. There are some people who just won't take the vaccine, are misinformed by Fox News and all the rest. And as a result, the numbers are going back up. While there's an effort to try to change this and to try to help people become more informed and draw attention to this deeply disturbing divide in America. Uh, Kristen Urquiza is the co-founder and executive director of Marked by COVID. It is a nonprofit and she joins us now from San Francisco. Kristen, this is a deeply personal to you, um, explain why. My dad passed away from COVID-19 and that happened about a year ago on June 30th. 
But part of the reason why he got sick in the first place was that he believed what was coming out of the president's mouth and the governor of Arizona's mouth and what was being broadcasted on Fox News that it was safe to resume normal activities. And so disinformation played a huge role in my dad's passing. Was he aware at the end that he had been misled? He told me he felt betrayed. It was one of the last things that we talked about before he was intubated. And it broke my heart to know that the people that he trusted misled him and that in the end it cost him his life. Kristen, how old was he? My dad was 65 and he hadn't had the chance to retire yet. He was getting ready for that. He was in the prime of his life and did not consider himself old by any stretch of the imagination. He was the life of the party and a wonderful guy who did not deserve what happened to him. Well, we are so uh, so sorry about what happened to your dad. Um, how did you essentially come to terms with the grief and be able to sort of turn yourself towards the greater good of helping people based on this horrific experience that you've had in your family? It's a great question. I co-founded Mark by COVID because um, you know, my dad, while his story was tragic, I could tell it wasn't unique. This was happening to people all across the country. And we uh, I needed to be able to, you know, raise my voice in order to help other people to slow the spread and also to um, really, you know, point out um, the leadership failure the policy failure and the disinformation failure that was fueling the pandemic. And that's what I've been doing for the last year. For the last couple of weeks, we've seen a growing number of Fox News personalities who seem to cast doubt on the vaccine and the coronavirus now come around and say, well, yeah, we believe in science, said Sean Hannity. And others who say, yeah, go ahead and take the vaccine, said Peter, Steve Ducey. What do you make of the, the sort of the way they've come around and is it too late? I mean, I think that this is a strategic move on their behalf. I'm I'm sure that their sponsors, investors are breathing down their necks because it's become clearer and clearer. Um, just the huge role that media outlets like Fox plays in fueling disinformation. And this isn't unique to the coronavirus. Uh, this has been around for a really long time. And I think the virus like exposing the huge health inequities that exist in our system are also exposing the deepness of disinformation and the um, complicit actors like uh, Fox and Fox and Friends. Is there a correlation between level of education and misinformation or people being misinformed? In other words, I mean, it seems like there's an argument now that the, the divide in the United States is really between you know, the coasts and sort of the south and the heartland. But it feels like there may be something else going on. Well, one thing I do know for sure is that the majority of people, upwards of 80% who are unvaccinated, make less than $60,000 a year. So this is not just a coastal thing. It's a it's a thing about you know poverty versus folks with um, higher uh, incomes. And in the case of my dad, I mean, he was a really smart individual, but you know part of his loyalty to uh, Fox and and the Trump administration has to deal with the fact that. That was, you know, he he was a lover of the Republican Party. He was a lifelong Republican, and um, those, you know, news stations to him, you know, seemed to be sort of the microphone of the party, which 
is exactly uh, what we're seeing. Given that uh, frustration that so many people have a lack of trust in institutions, which we hear about particularly in lower income and, 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 and people who've lost their jobs because of technology or because of change. And they feel like, well, the government hasn't done anything to protect them. And therefore they can't trust politicians, they can't trust government institutions. They can't trust systems to sort of help them. And so I suppose you know when somebody like a Donald Trump comes along and says, oh yeah, you shouldn't trust them. And here's why it's, it's, it's almost sort of irresistible. Given that sort of a frame, that frame of reference that they have, how do you get them to go from that, that deep mistrust that they have of all things institutional and get them to trust the science and trust the National Institutes of Health and the CDC? Well, the thing is, is that this type of work takes years because this is a type of programming that's been going on. And when it comes to the coronavirus response, we don't have years, we have minutes. This is a race against time and solely focusing on disinformation is not going to get us the vaccination rates that we need. So right now, what we are focused on doing is helping to make sure that we lower barriers to access to people who wanna get vaccinated and do what we can to start that long, term education to help bring people back from a totally different place. And that starts with not shaming people. Um, These folks in many instances are victims of disinformation and we cannot um, blame them fully for the way that they see the world because they really are existing in an alternative universe. We've seen honest obituaries on the rise over the last year. And I believe there was one also with with your dad. Um, What sort of role do honest obituaries play in sort of grabbing people's attention and educating people? You know, an obituary is a really powerful uh, tool that a family has and really saying the last word for their family. When my dad passed, we wrote an honest obituary in which we squarely put the cause of his death, not only on COVID-19, but on the politicians who continue to undermine uh, public health outcomes for people of color. Um, It was essential in helping to get my story out there and connect me with other people who feel the same way. And so I think that there's two roles that these um, obituaries play. One, they allow you to have the last word, um, to be able to really uh, claim the cause of death and and real terminology, but they also help connect people who feel similar to you. And that's one of the things that was incredibly um, overwhelming at first was just seeing how, although I felt alone in my father's death, I actually was feeling the way that so many other people out there were feeling about these preventable deaths because the way that we originally handled the pandemic. Who's your target audience? And I ask this because I mean, I just saw an interview with somebody who said, look, even though my senator has said, yes, go ahead and get the vaccine, I'm still not gonna get it. And so it seems like there's some people who just, no matter what you say, no matter what a senator says, a politician says, President Trump says, they're just not gonna do it. Are there persuadables though? Are there people who are perhaps more reluctant or hesitant that you think are the people who given the short amount of time that we have can be persuaded by this campaign? Absolutely, David. Our target audience right now happens to be people who um, wanna get vaccinated but have barriers to access. So for example, the Latino community, which is a community that I'm a part of, uh, we have the lowest vaccination rate still and the lowest vaccine hesitancy rate. 
Basically, that means that our people want to get vaccinated but are having difficulties in accessing a vaccine. And sometimes this is as simple as being able to have access to medical um, information in a language that they speak or something as simple as being able to have guaranteed paid time off to be able to get the vaccine. And our government institutions, local governments, state governments, what are some of the concrete steps they could take in order to try to reach out, say, to the Latino community? Um, one of the best ways in order to reach out to the Latino community is to work with leaders in the community and to bring the vaccines directly to places of business as well as places of worship. Um, being able to partner with grocery stores, with other sort of businesses that essential workers work at has been a tried and true uh, tested method that has helped increase vaccination rates in um, historically Hispanic uh, communities. Do you have a uh, sense about, um, well, first of all, are you very optimistic that this campaign will, will work? Um, and how do you define success? I mean, I am, you know, cautiously optimistic is the way I typically describe most of the things that I do. Um, but, you know, success is um, twofold. It's one, whenever we are able to control the virus um, so that it is not replicating in ways that it is. Um, and also, it's whenever people who have been severely harmed by the pandemic, people have lost loved ones, the 110,000 children who lost a caretaker. Folks like that, whenever they have what they need so that they're not further left behind as we recover, as we eventually recover from this pandemic. Kristen, what you're doing is so powerful and so inspiring. And I hope I look, you know, even if you just save, you know, one life, to me, you've you've you know, you've done it. And we really appreciate your efforts. And again, our deepest condolences on the loss of your father. And again, we're just so grateful for how you've been able to turn this and to help the greater good and help us so many people who lack access to COVID-19 vaccines and other information. Kristen Urquiza, she's the co-founder executive director of Mark by COVID. Kristen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've got it. And that is this edition of The Conversation on behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the gang at TYT and The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.